I think we could sing all night long about that, couldn't we? He's a good God. He's a great God. He's above all gods. And we give him glory and praise tonight. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Right now, in the presence of the Lord, Sister Rhonda is going to come forward and she's going to bring a word. The atmosphere has been set for us to receive what the Lord wants to speak to our hearts. Would you please welcome Sister Rhonda? Can you just go ahead and worship the Lord for a minute and just offer up a sacrifice of praise? It doesn't matter what I come in here with. It doesn't matter what's on my mind. When we begin to sing about the goodness of God, all of my life, he has been faithful. It doesn't matter where I've been. I know where I'm going, and I know what has brought me to the point that I'm at right now. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Just tell the Lord how much you love him. Tell him how good he's been to you all of your life. Father, we just going to stop right now, Lord, to just offer up a sacrifice of praise. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that you are a good God. You are for us and not against us, Lord. I love you and I thank you for the goodness of God. We exalt you in this place right now. Hallelujah. Just thank him. Just, just exalt him. Meditate upon the Lord for a minute. Just a minute. Give him 60 seconds of your time right now. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We honor you in this place. Oh, we honor you, Lord. We pause. We take a selah to exalt you and to honor you in this place. Hallowed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Make a declaration to the Lord right now of the goodness of God. You are a good God. You are a good Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the name of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your presence in the house. We thank you, Lord, again. We cannot thank you enough for the goodness of God, for the provision of the Lord. We exalt you and we thank you. Let your name be glorified in this house. Let your word go forth according to your good and perfect will. Let it penetrate our hearts, Lord, and challenge us, Father. Let it edify us, God, and let your will be accomplished in this room tonight. Hallelujah. To God be the glory. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. If we ever get in a hurry to exalt the Lord and to give him the praise and the glory and the honor that is due him, we are in trouble. We have lost sight and we have lost vision. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. We're going to just go right ahead and move right on into the word of the Lord tonight. I don't expect to keep you long. And I just told someone before service, I said, I feel like I have, I'm repeating myself because I feel like I have already spoken this here uh, at some point. And if I have, please forgive me, bear with me. But that just means I needed to go back through it and I needed to be reminded of it. Um, but I want to show you something. If Glenda will go ahead and put that picture up on the wall. This is Miss Lioness. 
That's not her name, but she's my lioness. Clara Jane. She is grandbaby number five, and she is a couple of weeks old. So um, I'm very proud of her, as you can see. But that's not why I, I'm putting that picture up there. I'm not doing that just to brag on her. I want to tell you something that um, has stood out to me. While she was still in the womb, before her physical body ever revealed her gender that was predetermined by God, let's make note of that, um, my daughter, Clara's mother, went to the lab, and she had her blood drawn. Before Clara's gender was ever revealed on an ultrasound, Haley's blood was drawn, and through Clara's mother's blood, her gender was revealed to us. It was the blood that told us what we needed to know about Miss Clara Jane. Long before it was ever exposed by the physical eye, it was revealed to us through the blood. And when you take a moment and think about that, that's pretty powerful. The blood speaks to us. The blood reveals things to us. There is power and promise in the blood, not just Clara Jane's blood, but the blood of Jesus. And I want to just read a scripture to you real quick that I probably read to you every single time I get up here, but it's because it's powerful and it reminds us of what we're battling and it reminds us, it exposes the works of the enemy. And every time we expose the works of the enemy, he loses power against us. Okay. And it's Ephesians 6 and 12, and it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's the shed blood of Jesus that gives us power against the enemy. It is the shed blood of Jesus Christ that took place on Mount Calvary that empowers you and I. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ Christ that is a weapon to you and I in the spiritual warfare on the spiritual battlefield. We have the weapon of the blood, and we're going to talk about that just briefly for a moment, and we can find scripture in Revelations 12, 10, and 11, and it says this. It says, then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. There are some very important key things about this scripture. This passage portrays Satan as cast down to the earth, confronting and accusing the citizens of the kingdom of God. That's you and me. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are sons and daughters of God. He is the accuser of us. The primary weapon that we have against him is the blood of Jesus Christ, the shed blood of the lamb. It's the blood of Jesus that causes God's sons and daughters to prevail, to be victorious, to be more than conquerors, over the enemy's accusations, over the works of the enemy, over darkness, principalities, and heirs of the, the air. Satan controls and defeats human beings through guilt and accusation. So when you feel accused and when you feel shame and when you feel guilt, that is the enemy condemning you. 
He has no power to do that over you through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The shed blood of Jesus has satisfied all of the charges against us, against you and I. And God has declared our righteousness and victorious that we are victorious through the blood of Jesus. So how do we overcome Satan? This text tells us three essential ways to be victorious, and they are, they cause us to live in constant victory. We don't just feel victorious today and defeated tomorrow. We can live in constant victory by applying these three essential um, tactics. And the first is to apply Jesus's blood in our prayers by faith. When we pray, we apply the blood of Jesus by faith. It's not by wishful thinking. It's not by positive thoughts or good vibes. It is by faith that we apply the precious blood of Jesus in our prayers. The second essential thing that we use to overcome the the enemy and to live in constant victory is we have to keep our testimony of Jesus's work in our lives in our conversations. We have to keep on telling people what the Lord has done for us. We have to keep on telling people about the goodness of God. We have to continually release those words from our lips and make declarations to others and share the testimonies that God has given to you. You and I have a good reason to talk about the Lord. You and I can come up with many things to to testify about for the goodness of God. He has brought us through numerous things and it's so easy to forget those things, but we've got to keep his, his, those testimonies alive in our conversations. They need to be continually upon our lips. And it says loving Jesus even more than we love our own lives. He, he comes first. We put him first. The word of God tells us that when we lose our life, that's when we find it. When we lay our life down at the feet of Jesus, that's when we begin to live. That's where we get joy. That's where we, we are conquerors over the works of the enemy is by putting the Lord first and loving him more than we even love ourselves. There's power and promise in the blood. It's the shed blood of Jesus that's given us direct access to the Father. We have open access to the altar of prayer. And I'm going to talk to you just briefly tonight about the fire on the altar. And uh, just bear with me if you've heard something similar to this. Um, Leviticus 6, 12, and 13 says, The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must never go out. Each morning the priest will add fresh wood to the fire and arrange the burnt offering on it. He will then burn the fat of the peace offerings on it. Remember, the fire must be kept burning on the altar at all times. It must never go out. The fire must remain burning on the altar at all times. That is a command to you and I to keep the fire burning on the altar at all times and to never let it go out. When would it go out? It goes out when we become burnout. And it can happen to any one of us. Any one of us. It's tragic and it's disheartening when a man or a woman of God becomes burned out. What was once fire on the altar of our heart suddenly reduces to a pile of smoldering embers, and we wonder what happened. How did we get here? The truth is the fire didn't go out suddenly. It didn't happen all at once, but it has died down and simmered down gradually over time until it becomes nothing more than smoke and embers, and it can happen to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to the strongest of the strongest and the weakest of the weakest. It happens 
We need not to be deceived that it can't happen to any one of us. God warned, do not let the fire go out. He wasn't referring only to an ancient blaze on an altar of rocks when he gave that warning. The altar that God desires most is a heart that is fully committed to him. Not partially committed to him, but fully committed to him. If we are partially committed to him, then we're already on our way to a burnout. At every defining moment in biblical history, we find the phrase written in the word of God, they built the altar of the Lord. Who built an altar of the Lord? Noah built an altar. Abraham built an altar. Moses built an altar. Aaron built an altar. Joshua built an altar. The word of God says that Samuel built an altar. Even Saul built an altar unto the Lord. Upon returning from Babylonian captivity, the people built an altar to the Lord. We can go on and on and on and give examples from the word of God of people that built an altar to the Lord. Altars have looked different over the years. Some of them have brass. Growing up, we had wooden altars that were attached to the platforms up here up front. And then through the years, the altars, they have changed the way that they look. Then we found them out in the middle in, uh, right here, and they were just sitting, and they were just wooden benches. And then the wooden benches, we padded them with, with padding and carpet and made them pretty and comfortable. And um, today, we use chairs. Today, we use the steps of this altar, and that's perfectly fine. Those are all altars, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with the fact that they've changed over the years because the purpose of the altar is not how it looks or where it's positioned. The altar is not an ancient concept, but it's a necessary element in our walk with the Lord. It's a place of anointing, and the anointing breaks the yoke of the enemy. The altar is a place of overcoming it's a place of daily communion. The word altar comes from a verb that means literally to slaughter. When we humble ourselves before the Lord at an altar, whether it be the foot of a bed, whether it be the chair, whether it be the steering wheel of a car, whether it be the shower, whether it be you name it, you fill in the blank, that's the altar is about coming before the Lord and sacrificing your own self, crucifying your own flesh and allowing the Lord access to you to cut away and to do in us and with us whatsoever he chooses, not so what not not whatsoever i choose not my will be done but the lord's will be done the dictionary defines it as an elevated place or structure at which religious rites are performed or on which sacrifices are offered to gods or ancestors but the altar is a place of relationship between god and us it's a place of pure and wholehearted relationship where our whole holy God can meet with us and his fire can fall. When the fire of the Holy Spirit falls on the embers of our heart, then a flame begins to sparkle and begins to um, grow and it becomes larger and bigger and it cannot be hidden. For the fire to come, we have to pray according to God's will, and that's what we're here for tonight. If we go back and look at the life of Elijah in the Old Testament, it's amazing to see his level of commitment to God. It's amazing to see his desire that he had to turn a nation back to God. Elijah never compromised on his calling. 
He had great understanding of God's covenant and the desperate need we have for true worship. The altar is a place of worship. That's why he restored the altar for worship for our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah stood firm and he didn't turn to the popular gods in the nation and God answered him with fire. So we're going to quickly take a brief look at Elijah, at, his, at the character of Elijah. Three points that are evident in his life that can be applied to our lives as well that will bring the fire of God to the altar of our hearts. And the first one is prayer. Elijah was a man of prayer. Although his prophetic work is, is the most obvious and the most talked about, we should remember that his life's foundation was prayer. The book of James introduces Elijah to us like this. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. He was a man just like you. He was a man just like me. He was a man of flesh, but he was a man of prayer. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the rain produced its crops. Grieved that Israel, under Jezebel's influence, was honoring Baal as the source of their blessings, Elijah started praying earnestly for the Lord to stop the rain in the land so that Israel might remember that it wasn't Baal who provided for them, but it was God. His prayers was to shine a light on the power of God. In response to his prayer, the Lord gave Elijah authority to stop rain, to control nature itself. Elijah lived his life on his knees. And I paused for us to think about that for just a moment. Elijah lived his life on his knees. That's where his authority came from. God trusts his authority to those he finds on their knees for his glory. With that amazing authority, Elijah went to King Ahab and said, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither no rain in the next few years except at my word. And he said that knowing that he carried and possessed the power and the authority and the fire on the altar of his heart. With that amazing authority... He, he delivered those words to Ahab. And the phrase that he spoke, except at my word, shows the level of authority with which God entrusted Elijah. Elijah's trust was not in himself, but it was in the Lord. Such standing authority came as a result of time on bended knee. When we spend our time on bended knee, and I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to myself. When we spend the time on bended knee, we can't prevent the power and the authority and the fire from being evident in our lives. A life of prayer that releases the power of God is the primary qualification that we need to restore the altar of God. The Lord heard Elijah's prayers. When the prophet spoke, the heavens obeyed. God is willing to do the same with us if we're committed to his glory and fire on the altar. God can trust us with authority to do his will when he finds us on our knees. Psalms 8 and 6 recalls the commission in the garden where Adam was given authority over nature. It says, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Jesus, who took back the authority Adam lost, gave his disciples authority, not only over nature in general, but over the enemy of righteousness. 
Luke 9 and 1 says, He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. So what that scripture is saying, if you are bought by the blood of the lamb, the blood that we just talked about, then you have that same power and that same authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. That means you have the same power, authority, and anointing to lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. He said to his disciples, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. He says, I have given you authority to trample, to walk on, to defeat snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy and nothing will harm you. Under such divine authority, we restore or rebuild the altar of God. The second point of Elijah's character that we are to live and uh, produce in our own lives is that of humility. After Elijah made his prophecy to Ahab about the drought, after a great declaration of authority, there was a great test of the prophet's humility. We find it in 1 Kings 17, 2 through 4, and he says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here. Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. The test of the prophet's humility wasn't simply that God would provide for him by a means that he couldn't control. The greater test was that Elijah would receive bread and meat from the ravens, unclean birds according to Jewish food laws. Elijah learned that authority and humility cannot be separated. We cannot have one without the other. If we want to walk in authority, we have to walk in humility. The third essential point to living in victory that was exemplified in the life of Elijah is that of faith. And the psalmist wrote, where does my help come from? Elijah knew that his help came from the Lord. At the showdown with the prophets of Baal, it says, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. And when I think about that scripture, you cannot judge me by me sharing this, but sometimes I like to watch a good boxing match. I know, you wouldn't have guessed it, would you? But if you have ever noticed, when you, if you've been into a physical fight or if you've seen and witnessed a physical fight, someone is always going to step in before they swing. You're going to step in and swing. And that is what prayer reminds me of. When you get on your knees and you bend and you bow to the Lord with humility and faith and prayer, then what you're doing is you're stepping into that boxing match and you're moving in for the move and you're going to put a right hook right on the eye of the enemy. You are doing damage to the kingdom of darkness every time you do that. Step forward means to draw near, to approach, or to go up. By doing this, Elijah set himself apart. He was demonstrating a life of courage and faith. The Hebrew word that we translate as step forward is also used for battle. By faith, Elijah was willing to fight the battle before him. He was willing to be different for the glory of God. 
We have to be willing to be different for the glory of God. We have to be willing to be separated. We have to be willing to be the outcast. We have to be willing to not be comfortable in certain crowds. We have to be willing to put ourselves out there and be vulnerable to be noticed that you are different. And it takes faith and it takes courage to do that. And by faith, Elijah was willing to fight the battle before him. He was willing to be different for the glory of God. I'm not willing to be different because I want to look good. I'm not willing to be different for my own self-pleasure or my own self-benefit. But I'm willing to be different for the glory of God. If we're going to change a nation and if we're going to make a difference in a city, we've got to be willing for the glory of God. The fire that God, the fire of God that comes by prayer can be kept alive only by prayer. One day after Jesus returned from praying, his disciples made a request. Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. This is what the disciples said. It appears this appeal was based on the disciples' own struggle with prayer. Everybody struggles with prayer. Don't condemn yourself just because you struggle with prayer. The enemy is going to fight you on the battlefield of prayer. So even the disciples was asking the Lord, teach us to pray. They witnessed Jesus praying on a regular basis, whether going out to the desert early in the morning, praying all night, or going to the mountain to pray. His example fueled their desire. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to preach. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to teach like you do. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to prophesy. They didn't say, Lord, teach us to plant churches. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. That is what they desired. They desired training in prayer. They saw Jesus' direct communication with his father and that he wouldn't do anything first without talking to him. Jesus' Jesus's relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit through prayer was what the disciples noticed, and that's what they longed for. If we want the fire back on the altar, and if we want revival, the revival that we've been talking and, and preaching about for the last I don't know how many years and showing up on Wednesday night, then we have to become people of prayer inside and outside of the church. We should understand that the foundation of effective prayer that brings divine fire is the passion to, to pursue relationship. The most crucial factor in prayer is to make a distinction between ritual and relationship. Prayer is not about ritual. Prayer is not about, I've got to do this at this time. I've got to do this because of so-and-so. I've got to get up and speak tonight. I've got to spend 30 minutes in prayer first. It's about relationship. When we maintain a strong relationship with the Lord, we're going to maintain a strong prayer life. Prayer is about relationship. If our prayer life is unstable, then our relationship with Christ is unstable. The kind of fire that we're talking about tonight, the fire on the altar is the fire on the altar of our hearts. It's an all-consuming fire. Scripture describes our God as fire. It says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God. He is a consuming fire, and he is a jealous God, and he requires all of us, all of us. Fire is the indicator or the display of the glory and the majesty of Almighty God. The fire renews our spiritual lives. The fire will 
heal us of a burnout. The fire will raise us up from a bed of slothfulness and laziness. And I'm talking to myself. I feel like I'm being mean, but I'm talking to myself. This is the word that the Lord gave me. So whatever he gives me, I have to give you. Passion for prayer and worship and the desire to know and obey the word of God are the result of true fire. When we lose the fire, we lose the essence of prayer and relationship with God. If we don't have fire, then all we have is smoke and embers, and there's no power in smoke and embers. And we need the power to make a difference in the world that we're living in. We need the power, the fire, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit to do what God has called us to do in these last days. And as the enemy, as we draw closer to the presence of God, you know, the enemy is not going to quit and give up on us, but it's okay because we have the weapon of the blood. We stand on the blood. We appropriate the word of God. We appropriate the blood and the word of God through prayer. So at this time, we're going to go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. And most of the time, I really don't have a plan for this part. We're just going to, if you'll just come forward, we're just going to go to the Lord together in prayer. And I do have a specific prayer request tonight. And I think you all will agree that it's appropriate and it's not out of order. We need rain. We need rain. We need it to rain. And we don't need a sprinkle. We need buckets of rain because this is affecting a lot of people in a lot of areas. So I'm going to ask tonight that as you pray for fire and as you let, let's even just, let's even go as far to just repent to the Lord tonight and ask for forgiveness for neglecting the power of prayer. And let's pray for rain and fire. Hallelujah.